Remember Jeremy Wright, who's never here anymore because he's at school. Every hand went up. Tall guy. Okay. On three, I want you to say hello. I want you to say hi, Jeremy, because he's listening to you now live, telecast here, on uh, on his mom's phone. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, hi, Jeremy. All right. So he's answering back now and crying. And all that. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um, I'd like to just formally welcome my mother-in-law, Anna, to uh, the Bellator community. She has arrived last Sunday. She's here for the foreseeable future, and uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're glad to have her here. I owe her Amen. a large, large debt of gratitude, because without her, I would not have my love. Yes, life. you married uh, you married up, buddy. Let me tell you. <laughs> so if you haven't had a chance to meet, uh, to meet my mother-in-law, Anna, please. Uh, do so, and she's, she'll be a regular fixture. Hey, welcome to Anna, and I. Uh, I know that she is looking for employment here. I have a resume if you want a copy, but you need to pass that on to anyone who may be able to assist in that regard. Praise God! Uh, I actually thought she was. Um, Gabby's sister for a while, and I really wasn't making it up. So um, that's great. Um, Jeremiah Spurlock is going to be a pilot. He is. Sorry, Jeremy. Jeremy's going to be a pilot, too. I know. He's going to be a pilot, too. We neglected to um, express our joy with Ryan um, this morning. He was called up to the Torah to read publicly for the first time in his life. Now. That's right. <laughs> Boy, are you in trouble. <laughs> okay. Why don't you stop and think. There's going to be a, a slightly different portion discussion um, today. Do you believe that God works in our midst today? Or do you believe that what you read in the scriptures was way back then with those people and that he doesn't really work in our lives Anymore in that fashion. Where do you fall? He still works? What, what do you mean by beliefs? Always the troublemaker. Always the troublemaker. When I say that was curious, maybe you think, no, that was God. 
<laughs> Does God work in your life that you can noticeably say with integrity, that's my God. God did that. Or do you believe that it's just happenstance and it's going to happen whatever way it happens? Okay. Steps of the righteous are over the podcast. I couldn't hear you. What did he say? I believe the steps of the righteous. I heard him. I believe the steps of the righteous are ordered. Amen. Amen. So let me tell you a quick story. You all know what I do for a living. I talk to people. No. I'm, I'm a technology guy. That's what I do. Isaac and I did some math earlier, and without question, I have recorded you and me and the Tzadi class at least 250 specific times. I know how to do it. But when Rabbi... We'll call him Jeremy G. No, no, no. Let's call him J. Gimpel. When he showed up, he, uh, he, he put the mic on, and it was at his belly button. And I didn't notice. So when he was done talking to us, I had great recordings of you breathing and him breathing. But we couldn't hear a thing. And I thought, well, this is the first time we've actually had an Orthodox rabbi come to speak to us. And, okay, that was odd. Then we had another Orthodox rabbi come. And he didn't want to be recorded. Because, of course, he was talking to Gentiles and work could get around. That might not go too well for him. Then we had Rabbi D. They call him Daniel L. Um, he uh, he came to speak to the Tzadik man on on very short notice uh, this past Monday night, and I was excited to get this one recorded, and I made sure he had the lapel mic right there on his lapel, and I checked to make sure that the red light was on and not flashing. As you see that it is now. How many of you see that it is now? Thank you very much. And you checked to make sure the batteries I checked. We have brand new batteries. And I watched to see the little volume hoobers going back and forth. So I sat down knowing that we were in good shape. (laughs) (laughs) I normally rise long before my family. And in the wee hours of the morning, I got up on Tuesday morning and snuck in here and grabbed a little SD card and threw it in my computer. And not only was there not a file that was too small, there was no file on the SD card. There was no file there. There was nothing for me to even try and fix. There was no file. So what do you do when you have a technology problem and you're a technology guy? You give it to your son. So I let Peter mess with it, and he concluded, we're completely out of luck. There's nothing there. This is the third time we've had an Orthodox rabbi here. It's the third time we haven't gotten a recording. I'm just thinking, God may be doing something. So um, I don't know if that's true, but uh, what I'd like to do for the next 60 minutes is recreate the rabbi's talk for you, and we will flesh it out using the whiteboard for bullets. And for those of you who were here as he spoke, 
I want you to pull your notes out and flesh out some of the things that we're going to talk about. Is everybody okay with that? Mm -hmm. He began his talk at the back end of Bushalach, the portion right before the one that we're in now, which is pretty timely. So at the back end of that portion, he started with Rephidim. And he asked, is there anyone who knows where Rephidim is? And I was so thrilled. I'm, you know, I'm hosting the guy. And I'm hoping the guys aren't going to go flat on their face. They're actually going to be, you know, talkative. And you know how guys can sometimes be quiet. And someone worthless. These guys? You know. yeah. so not, not these guys, right? So, um, Rephidim. And God bless him. Greg up and step right to the plate. Raises his hand. He's going to tell the rabbi where Rephidim is. The rabbi being a great rabbi, cuts Greg off. Greg starts to answer, and he cuts him off right in the middle of talking and says, because you know, if you know where Rephidim is and you tell me, we'll be the only two people on the planet that really knows where it is. (laughs) Okay, I'm thinking to myself, I'm glad I didn't raise my hand. Great. I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, Greg, the rabbi did comment that I would have thought it was the same place that Greg right. was going with it. So Greg, undaunted, still says, I believe it's over here on the west coast of such and such, and it's about 50 miles from here, and 20 miles this, so the crow flies. And he laid out exactly where it was. And the rabbi said, that's exactly where I think it is, too. But in reality, Rephidim is nowhere. It's not a place. It's a time. So who would like to pick up from there on Rephidim? Close the door. Is everybody warm enough? <laughs> who wants to pick up who is here and talk about Rephidim? Not right here. Okay. And what the, uh, what the rabbi said. Jonathan, now you need to speak up because we've got a, a soon-to-be pilot listening. <laughs> He's got great eyes, but who knows how he can hear. Yeah. For the Air Force cadets. And That's right. <laughs> uh, Rephidim, the word, is a, um, a compound word, actually. It comes from Rephe Yadim, or Yadaim, which would be weak hands. Hands in, in the plural. And basically, the, uh, that in the Hebraic understanding of time and or even of the universe, the word that I would see all the time. Olam, uh, king of the universe. While it does mean universe, it also means forever. We say, um, you know, Olam, forever and again, basically. So it is a physical, tangible uh, entity. It has, it, 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 it is space. Um, but it also is time, and, uh, and it was really cool to see that connection of, of you know, what is space and what is time uh, in, in one Hebrew word, and that's a biblical concept that they're connected. So, um, Rephidim, while it probably is you know, a place, it's more so a, a, a position where the Israelites were, had weak hands, that is, weak, uh, weak spiritual hands. Okay, let's hold on the weak hands for a second. We want to make sure that we understand that this word olam indicates to us that 
it is a place and it is a time. They are one in the same. Yeah, I was just going to say that that or should be in hand because um, sort of what he was saying was that time and space can be inseparable. They are inseparable, yes. Yeah, not, not because Rabbi Levin, or Rabbi, the Rabbi. Said, said this, but uh, Rabbi uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's Heschel. book, The Shabbat, The Sabbath, uh, makes this point that that the Sabbath is not merely a time, but that it is more than a time. Mm-hmm. At the very least, we can say the Sabbath is a place and a time. And in fact, in that book, Rabbi Heschel says that the first thing that God created was a, after he was done with his physical creation, he created a sanctuary in time. A sanctuary in time. That's what Shabbat is. A sanctuary in time. A place, a time where we can go and rest. Outstanding. By the way, if you don't have that book, highly recommend it. The Sabbath by Rabbi Abraham Heschel. So, in, in this, the portion here that he's referring to is from Exodus chapter 17, when they arrive at the encampment called, you know, Rephidim, which is this point in time, more so than a physical place, right, as we just discussed, and if you recall the story, they start complaining because they have no water, they're thirsty, and they start complaining, Moses, you, you know, what you do, there's nothing to drink, did you bring us out here to die, we should have stayed in Egypt, blah, 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 <clears throat> and this particular portion has a special place in my heart because this is when uh, uh, Hashem speaks to Moshe and says, take your staff and go out before the people and strike the rock. Okay, well, and that is just chock full of Messiah. And then we know the story, out from the rock comes water that sustains the people. And in, uh, and in verse 7 of chapter 17 of Exodus, it says... He called the place Masa'u-Merabah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because of their test of Hashem. Masa'u-Merabah literally means contention and test. Because of their contention, because of the contention of the children of Israel, because of their test of Adonai saying, is Adonai among us? Okay, so the whole point here is they get to this point in time where they're doubting that is God even with us? And it's like, what crack are you smoking? Where were you two weeks ago when he split the sea and you know, we had all of fifty pound hailstones right. on fire? Yeah, you know. And now we're doubting: is he even among us? Yeah. Which is this this idea of spiritual weakness? Yes. So his very next verse, verse eight, says right after it says. They are asking themselves, is God among us? The very next verse says, Amalek came and battled Israel in Rephidim. So there's this connection between their the, the spiritual weakness, as it were, that they have, this doubting about whether God is even with them, and immediately, as, as soon as they doubt, immediately Amalek comes and makes war against them. So there's there's a spiritual connection. You bet. So we've got this weakness of the hands, or perhaps the spiritual walk of the uh, Hebrew people and Amalek, and the rabbi wanted to make us understand that it's like a seesaw. If Amalek is strong, Israel is weak. If Israel is strong, 
Amalek is weak. Remember who Amalek is. He is the grandson of Esau. Esau. All right, so we're going to write this down. And um, when God promises to Rebekah, the, the situation the brothers, the younger serve the older, the, um, I believe it's there, the implication in some of his promise, depending how you read it, is that they will never be balanced. In other words, one will rise, the other will fall. They can never both be great at the same time. So in that sense, um, Amalek, as a descendant of Esau, is the, um, he is the inverse of Jacob, inverse of Israel. If, if Israel is weak, then Amalek is strong. If, if, Amalek, if Israel is strong, then Amalek is weak. So at this point... You've got, yeah, yin-yang. Um, it's almost like yin and yang. Kosher yin-yang. Exactly. The idea where one's going to be up, the other's going to be down. Now, help me, he went from there, from hands to voice. That was cool. How did he do that hands to voice transition? Does anybody remember? Well, going back to the Jacob-Esau contest, he talks about hands of Esau. All right, so how many of you, uh, I mean, you all remember... In um, in the blessing, actually, it's right before the blessing, um, that was supposedly stolen. Right, we have that whole story of Jacob faking out Dad. Do you remember that? You know what we're talking about. Everybody with us? Okay. So we've got that going. You want to pick up? Well, just one last thought as it pertains to the weak hands, because when when Rabbi Lapin made the connection or pointed out to us. That refadim is this compound word, refayadayim, weak hands. Immediately, I thought of the remez I had was just like three or four verses later, Moses is on the hill with Aaron and her. Remember that? Holding up his hands. Because his hands were weak. His weak hands. So, and of course, that also is chock full of Messiah. Messiah, so yeah. There was, um, that was kind of a cool remez. Yeah. So when the hands got weak and went down, what happened in the battle? Oh, it's not yes. And when the hands were lifted up and they were strengthened, if you will, they did better. And that is actually the first usage of the of the root word that for emunah, faith. That when when uh, Joshua and Hur supported Moshe's arms, it says that they held them up. It's the root word for emunah, faith. Good. Yes, ma'am. Well, and that re- reminds me of um, Jehoshaphat in I think it's Second Chronicles twenty, where he said to go into battle raising your hands and praising God. Yeah. That's all they did. And the battle God, is the Lord. God turned them against themselves. Amen. Amen. All right, so the blessing, there's a couple of key phrases that are used. Jacob walks in, and he's convinced to do this because his mother says, you need to, you need to fake out a dad, and essentially says, the results of this, whatever it may be, will fall on me. Not that she would take the blame, but that the consequence would be hers as well as his. So he's convinced to put on some goat skin. goat skin on his hands and on the back of his neck. And he goes in with the Esau was named 
Harry. Harry. He's a hairy guy, right? And uh, red hair. Yeah, red, red and hairy. And Jacob shows up with the with the stuff on. And now, what do we? What does it say about Isaac? His eyes were weak. So we got a lot of weakness going on here, right? His eyes are weak. He shows up. Jacob shows up. He feels his hands. Feels behind his neck. And he goes, huh? What does he say? The hands of Esau, but the voice of Jacob. And that's where the rabbi was saying, it's one or the other, but these go hand in hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> the irony, though, is there's a Hebrew, there's a Hebrew um, <laughs> hand and voice. They go hand and voice. There's a Hebrew complication with this phrase. It's the hands of the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. And in Hebrew, literally, it says, um, kol hakol Yaakov. Um, the voice is the voice of Jacob. But the problem is it's misspelled. Exactly. The first one in Hebrew is kuf vav lamid, kol, literally. And then the second one should be he kuf vav lamid hakol. But the, the O sound, the Vav, is missing in the second kol. So instead of it saying kol hakol, it actually says kol hakal, if you were to read it without inserting the Vav like you should. So it's, what Rabbi Lappin points out is that you know, one interpretation of this is if you just read it straight, the word hakal, again, plays off of the idea of like weakness. So it's like when... Um, Jacob, Esau is the hands. Jacob is the voice. When the voice of Jacob is weak, when it's not what it should be, then Esau's hands are strengthened. Exactly. But can, uh, conversely, conversely, if Jacob's voice, do you think about in in the concept of voice? You think about praise. You think about prayer. You think about the spiritual power. Yes. Um, then. It is Jacob who is stronger, and Esau is weakened. Exactly. And there's that seesaw, so that where one rises up, the other goes down. So here's the rabbi lamenting the whole state of Israel and their lack of keeping the Torah and their lack of voice of of righteousness. Some of them, yeah, not all of them. Yes, sir. It was also really neat when he was saying that any of the righteous people, what they said at the time, also is prophetic. He was saying most of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, anything that they said, you could really see that as prophetic. And one of the things that he played off of the phrase when she said um, that your curse shall be on me, yeah. that word for curse, and I think this is upon me. What? Upon me is a lie. Yeah, a lie. That's it. Yeah. And that's actually an acronym. And the I guess the way that you would spell that would be an. Ayin, yeah, Lamed, and then the Yod. And he was saying that's the acronym for the three troubles that Jacob would face, which would be Asav, Levan, and then eventually Yosef. Did you get get it? So, I mean, now all our brains are full. We got got the boys hand thing. Yeah, we want to take a break. And that was his intro. And he's ready to go. We're going to go through the whole Bible. You know, and it's like. 
All right. What I loved most, one thing I loved most about his talk was the fact that even when it felt like a rabbit trail, and you're thinking, where is he going with this? Somehow it ended up being like one of the coolest things you'd ever heard. His rabbit trails were not rabbit trails. They were sermons by themselves. They were. And ironically, his last name was Rabbit. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. All right. So now we're we've started with Rephidim, which is not a place, but is a place, is a time and not a time. You're in a bad way, a bad time, bad space, bad place. And we've gone from weak hands to that whole remez into the blessing and Jacob and Esau and Amalek. So we've got we don't need to keep that up there. Um, we've got this whole weak hands thing and Amalek. Now, if you've been around our fellowship for any length of time, you know that the spirit of Amalek, we've had many classes on, and how that spirit of Amalek still exists today. And in fact, I would go so far as to say, in the apostolic scriptures, we normally see it written as the spirit of the Antichrist, or the Anti-Messiah. It's exactly right. So it's, it's one and the same. So let's now travel deeper and follow the rabbi's non-rabbit trails. It's the rabbit hole, if you will. It's a rabbit hole, yeah. <laughs> what is it? Take the white thing. We'll go there. Um, what, where, where did he go next? What was what was his leading? Because we're going to get to Esther. And uh, well, I want to make sure I don't miss anything. He talked about the fact that it's a mitzvah to destroy Amalek. Right. So let's talk about Amalek and the six things we're commanded to remember. There's six things in the scripture we're commanded to remember. Do you remember what they are? Remember? Remember the Exodus. Remember the giving of the Torah of Mount Sinai. Remember Remember to forget. Not to remember to forget. Amalek and wipe his name out so he's not remembered anymore. So don't forget to remember not to forget that he should be forgotten kind of thing. Good. Remember the golden calf. The golden calf. What happened to Miriam? Shabbat. And Shabbat. Those are six things we're commanded in the Scripture to remember. I remember when I was just getting into the study of the Torah, and as my family knows, our big thing was the Ten Commandments. Do you think we should keep the Ten Commandments? And everybody in my Sunday school class said, of course. Well, if you're if you believe that, well, tell me what they are. And nobody could tell me what the ten were. Okay, well, fake it. And they couldn't. You know, six out of ten. I mean, that's flunking, even in school, you know. So we taught them how to remember those. But now, we're beyond the Ten Commandments. What are we commanded to remember? What are we commanded not to forget those six things? And I think we should take that to heart. You'll find that, by the way, in your sitter. At the end of weekday shakari prayers, that's pretty much what we end up with. Those six things, and then the 13 uh, principles of Maimonides. But that's, that's where we're at. Go. So he, uh, so just to pick up on that that last, that last thought there, we're commanded to, to uh, uh, not forget to blot out Amalek. And right. at the end of that portion in, in Exodus 17, uh, in verse 15 or verse 16, it says, 
and he said, uh, Moses, this is Moses speaking, for the hand, uh, for the hand is on the throne of God, Adonai maintains a war against Amalek, Lador, Lador, from generation to generation. Okay? So, and then we see that repeated again in Deuteronomy, where we're commanded in Deuteronomy to blot out the name of, uh, to blot out the name of Amalek. Okay? And what's interesting is, and from here he went to the, to, uh, to, uh, Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. But what's interesting is um, when I did, a year or two ago, when I did the study on Purim, um, of course, Amalek fits into that whole uh, story, and, and, the, and the rabbi kind of went there too. Well, we're going to go there in a second. Right. We're, you're probably going to bring us there in a second. <laughs> but in, in when I did that study, one of the things I learned in that study was Amalek, um, you know, to, to, to introduce some gematria, okay? The, the gematria for Amalek's name uh, is the same as the gematria for the Hebrew word safek, which means doubt. So therefore, the rabbis made this connection because in the passage they're doubting whether God is with them, and then Amalek attacks. Mm -hmm. They make this connection with the gematria that says, oh, Amalek equals doubt, equals lack of faith. Does everybody know what gematria is? Mm -hmm. This is the numeric adding up of the, of the letters in the word. Each letter in Hebrew is equivalent to a number. So we add up the number, and this number, you know, this word, the, the numerical value is this much. And the rabbis will, will just grab another word that's got the same numerical value and try and equate them. And they'll use the context to do so. Right. So in the context, they're doubting, and doubt has the same uh, numerical value. Numerical value is the name Amalek. And so they say, oh, Hashem maintains war against doubt. Wow. Against lack of faith in every generation. We know that to be absolutely true. And therefore, we are commanded to annihilate doubt from our midst. How cool is that? And once again, the rabbi takes a breath and you're like, wow, that'll preach. I'm ready to go home. But that was just his warm-up after the intro. Another fun thing about this that I've never thought about before is he points out the fact that Amalek, Am Amalekites, can actually convert to Judaism. Yeah. He notes that you are actually prohibited from letting certain groups into your midst because um, the Moabites, because of their really nastiness as as just a general trait, as exhibited by the fact that they would even sell water to the children of Israel when they were, you know, right. let alone give it. Yeah, not giving it, just don't even sell it. So. God has a list in Deuteronomy of certain groups or people that um, kind of have to be kept at an arm's length, if right. you will. Good. Amalek's not one of them. And so the rabbi points out that you can actually convert Amalek. He said you can be, you can, uh, Amal Amalekites, you know, you don't have to destroy them by, you know, shooting them. You actually can turn them into, well, in a sense, part of Israel. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, sir. Which works with the whole uh, concept of uh, um, the Yetzer Hara, and that even though even though the flesh wars against us, it's our duty to take those those things that the flesh uses and to take them captive Amen. to the obedience yes. of Messiah and use them to God's glory instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it isn't this where Paul is coming from when he tells us that we should take every thought. Obedient, right? To the Lordship of Messiah. Okay, 
So we've got this war against Dao. We've got this war against Amalek. And another thing that the rabbi was trying to point out here is that Amalek has as much a divine mission as Israel. Israel's got a divine mission. And if we're part of Israel, what, what is it we're supposed to be doing? In our Torah service this morning, the uh, reading from the Apostolic Scriptures talked about the fact that in Matthew chapter 5, we're supposed to be a light, light to the nations. They should see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We should be noticeable. So we have this absolute mission to share Messiah with the world. The rabbi's point was, as much as that's the job of God's people, the Amalekites have a divine mission and is to be, at, to- at all times, against Israel. It's like, like the master said, you'll always have the poor with you. He, you know, the, the rabbi's like, you're always going to have the Amalekites. There's always going to be the spirit of the Antichrist, if you will. And Paul said the same thing. It's right here now! And that was in 30 AD. Or the common era, right? So, this spirit of Amalek exists today. It's at this point, that I, unless I'm jumping ahead, I think that the rabbi then took us on a tour of time and the scriptures. And I think his first place to stop was Samuel. Was was Samuel? But real quick, before we go there, one of the quick points. This is to emphasize the importance of Samuel 15. Yes. He says something I had never heard before. I thought it was really fascinating. Traditionally, Judaism believes that if every Jew would keep Shabbat, Messiah would come back. Right. Has everybody heard that? If if every Jew on the planet kept Shabbat just one time, Messiah would come. They believe that. What does this teach us? That each of us has a righteousness that affects the community. Each of us affects the community by our sin as well. We had an awesome class on that from Rick some time ago. No, I was just because I was uh, I was just reading too also that they talked uh, that you know God sees the Jew or that the Jews see themselves as a whole. So when a part is missing or a part is not doing anything, then, we got then a problem. the whole thing is, is exactly not. right. And isn't this consistent with Paul in the Apostolic Scriptures who said it's like one big body. Right. Big toes having a problem. What about the thumb? You know, what are you going to say to the thumb? You're just the thumb. Yeah. But another precondition that Rabbi Lappin pointed out that I had never heard before to Messiah's coming or return um, is that uh, is destroying Amalek. Mm. That the elimination of Amalek is also something that's supposed to happen before Messiah comes. Or that Messiah, he's coming, would destroy Amalek. So now it's done. So we're always going to be dealing with him and trying to wipe him out. But there's always going to be this seesaw going on because they've got a divine mission to thwart the people of God. And the people of God are supposed to be fighting against this spirit of Amalek. But when Messiah comes... Everybody out of the pool, Amalek's toast. <laughs> that's, not, that's my version of it. That's not really what the rabbi was saying, though. It's more of a, along Joshua's point, where if we could just destroy Amalek, Messiah, Messiah would come. come back, which is where the Samuel... Exactly right. Come. Exactly right. And in fact, he said the redemption could have come right then. That's right. Back exactly. in 1 Samuel. So, for those of you who are new to the Scriptures, for those of you who, uh, when I say 1 Samuel... You don't know what comes to mind? You might want to open up the scriptures to 1 Samuel. And we'll look at the story of when the king 
at that time? Saul. Saul or Shaul, right? The king was told to wipe out Agag and all these guys. We had an opportunity. What, what's the exact reference, Greg? So, First Samuel chapter fifteen. The whole chapter is kind of the story. I'll just uh, I'll just recite a couple of the key verses. Verse two. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is this is uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel uh, speaking. Uh, or I'm sorry, the Lord speaking to the prophet Samuel. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. What did he do? What happened in Exodus? Right. Okay. Um, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Have your pity. Okay. Uh, and and then he says. Um, um, uh, well, in this particular, I'm using uh, NASB. Uh, it doesn't. We skip the pity thing. How many of you are familiar with this? You know this story, yes? Yeah. Right. So we're familiar with this, and we know. So it's do not spare in here, but I think other versions said you know, don't take don't don't, don't take any pity, right? So everybody on the same sheet of music with us. So we've got a command coming out from the prophet, and he says to the king, "Wipe these guys out." Have no mercy. Everybody. Men, women, children, even the animals. And if you watch the movie, you know the the humor that we get a little bit later when Samuel shows up, right? Because he hears he hears the sound of the sheep. The sheep. What's that sounding? What else you got? So um, so skipping to verse eight. He captured a god. This is now referring to King Saul. He captured a god, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and people spared a god and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all of his good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised uh, and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they go, and they, make, they wage war against Amalek, um, but in disobedience to the commandment that God said, they took captive the king, King Adad, and they also spared the best of the of the herds. They did kill everybody else. But it says here, interestingly, in the, in the NAS, NASB, it says, um, it says, uh, verse 8, uh, and utterly, utterly destroyed all the people. But then in verse 9 it says, uh, and we're not willing to destroy them utterly, meaning referring to the king and the best of the flocks. Uh, so then he, he comes back from the battle. All right, hang, hang on one second before you go further. Thank you. How many of you seen have seen the movie One Night with the King? Raise your hands up. How many of you have not seen it? Okay. Um, I would lend you mine, but Purim's coming up, and I can't. Okay? So um, I can tell you this. Awesome movie. I mean, it's really great because the movie starts... I mean, it's the story of Esther, right? But it starts out in the story that Greg is reading to us. It starts out with the background of where Haman or Haman comes from, okay? That's the whole thing. So, you know, I think it's a good movie. Is it? Is it true to the scriptures in every area? No, but it's complimentary. And you can really learn some stuff, and it'll make your eyebrows go up, and we can always sit around and talk about it. Um, but bottom line is this. They 
did, the king and the people did, exactly what you and I do on a daily basis. We're, we're, we know exactly what God wants. And we are unwilling to do it. What's a three-letter word for that? <laughs> it's as simple as that. You hear they had an opportunity? Bam! Could have been done. Same thing we're going to read in a few weeks where they get to the edge of the promised land, go in, take the land. What do they do? Send in spies, come back, bad report. Oops, 40 years. Everybody's got to die. They had an opportunity, blew it. It's not the first one. But my God is not willing to let us fall by the wayside. He demands obedience or he will discipline. And in this case, he did. The discipline for the king was pretty severe. So let's hear what happened here. So I'll, I'll paraphrase, but Saul comes back to, I think, uh, Gilgal is where they're at. And, uh, and and the prophet Samuel comes out to, to greet him, and he hears the bleeding of the sheep. And he's like, hey, uh, what's that I hear? Oh, well, uh, we brought back the best of the flock to offer them to Adonai. Now, what, just think about it for a second. Do you suppose that none of the Israelites had any sheep? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they did have sheep. It, we think God doesn't know our sin. We think that we can just kind of walk around and He doesn't see the sin. I believe He told that prophet right off the bat, go talk to the king, because He kept some stuff. And... He knew right off the bat. Yes, sir. I was thinking of um, Christmas because just the idea that we disobeyed God so that we could serve Him um, type thing. So we we kept these sheep so that we could offer them to God. It makes it okay because of the end. It justifies the means. Right. But that's not really true. Well, how do you tie that with Christmas, huh? <laughs> well, that's... Go ahead. <laughs> Preach it, brother. Let's go, man. <laughs> Come on. Well, I tie it because I think a lot of um, people are going to in have professional Christmas in, in PC are not going to have a problem um, even even after knowing the pagan roots of Christmas are going to have a problem keeping it because they're keeping it for the right reason. God. So the end justifies the means. Right. We can lift up the very Son of God in His birth and Emmanuel, God with us and all of that, even though we're violating the Scripture. We're bringing an evergreen into our home, which is specifically against God's Word in Jeremiah, right? Can I tag on to that just for a brief? It's, it's worshiping Hashem in a way in a manner that He hasn't prescribed. Right. It's the golden I mean, yeah. It's the same thing with is it? the golden calf. That's right. that here is the God that brought you out of Egypt. You bet. And we want to do it our way. Mm. I've got that song on my iPod, I think. Okay, so, so we pick out, up. He comes out, he, he hears the sheep, what's this? Oh, we brought the sheep back to... Oh, really? Well, I thought we. I thought God said we're supposed to kill all the sheep. I thought we had an agreement here. <laughs> Strike one, right? Did you do anything else stupid while you were doing that? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. I brought. I, I captured the king. You know, he is a. He is, after all, a noble adversary, right? I mean, so I captured the king, and I have a dog. And so, so uh, the prophet Samuel says, "Bring out King Agag." He brings him out, and the scripture says that he took. He took his sword 
And in the Hebrew, the word there has the connotation he hacked a god to pieces. Okay, it's like very, very brutal. The imagery in the Hebrew is it's not like he just ran through. No, no, no. He he made mincemeat out of King Agag, okay? Which is to say, this is how serious the war against Amalek God takes. We are not supposed to play around with Amalek. We're not supposed to, you know, put him on a leash and parade him around and sit and look at Amalek. We're supposed to utterly destroy Amalek. It's a serious thing. Now, in the movie... Uh, one night with the king that I referenced. Um, they they take some liberties and indicate that the king was captured with his queen, and that the queen got away before Samuel got there the next morning, and she was with child. The rabbi explained it when he was here, and said that. He was brought his last meal, as you would do with a condemned prisoner. And then we get into um, a pairing that he's um, he's going to... This was, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't want to cut you off here, but this is where he started giving us the attributes of Amalekites. And his first attribute was coupling passion with death. And I got to tell you, according to uh, uh, what Joshua said a little bit ago, that's the first time I heard that. So I'm going to try and say this delicately (laughs) as best I can, um, but if I slip a little bit, I pray that you would ask my wife to be gentle with me later. So, basically, the rabbi was saying, servant girl brings him his last meal, and he not only takes the meal, but takes the girl. And now, there's an Amalekite in the womb. Is everybody with me? We don't need to go further, yes? Kids on the couch, we're fine. Yes? Okay. So this coupling of passion with death seems to be a trait set forth by this first guy that we're hearing about. Oh, and because nobody well, in their right so, state of mind right. would like those two. So, well, that, so the rabbi, you know, we're all looking at him like, did he just say what I think he just said? Is he? What? Wow. And that's when he explained. He goes, you know, they, we were asked. We've been asked. Is there anybody, you know, what did you do for passion in the concentration camps? How did did that work from a privacy perspective? You know, and he looks at the people and says, there was no passion in the the concentration. Men don't work that way. When you're about to, you know, if you've been in a life and death situation, the plumbing stops working. You know, the, the passion thing goes away. That's the last thing in a... Normal man's mind. He's not an Amalekite. <laughs> and now he's like juxtaposing the Amalekite and this sick desire in death against Cause if you can do the normal man. Agag should have been. I mean, he does later say the bitterness of death has passed me. But theoretically, Agag has been feel should have been feeling like he's facing death. He's getting his last meal. So the idea is that um, in the same sense that, like, uh, well, I mean, that one thing the rabbi pointed out was the one reason why Jews don't mix milk and meat. 
They say that milk represents birth, it represents life, meat is death. So the idea being that Jews are very good at separating life and death. They don't mix them. There, there is a philosophy that some people might be acquainted with, uh, nihilism, that, that's pervasive in this, in this day and age. Nihilism is pervasive. It's found in, you know, Help me. Nihilism, help me. Uh, it's it's that, this marriage sorry. between passion and death. Okay. Uh, nihilism is a uh, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we'll die. Uh, at the extreme end, uh, but it's seen in, 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 in almost uh, a celebration of death as well. Mm-hmm. And nihilism focuses on dark things and marries them and couples them with with uh, a, a form of sexuality. We see it in nihilism is is was most prevalent in, in Nazi Germany at the time, in the time of the Enlightenment. Um, and it's also prevalent today in, in some of the same kind of things that you see. Uh, uh, not to not to pick on any one group, but we goth, love it when you pick on goth. It's that dark uh, death thing, but it's not death in a bad way. It's death as if it's good. Mm. Yeah, good. Right. I was just uh, wondering because uh, one of the other uh, characteristics of Amalek is this whole idea. Of- Back. Oh. We didn't get there yet. Okay. No, wait. <laughs> so hold on that thought. Okay. All right. So. To go along with the life and death separation, that's where we had like the laws surrounding Nida and stuff like that. Exactly. Right, with family purity and Nida, and right? And, and he, he expressed that openly. He said, your wife is in a manner of a woman. What man in his right mind would want to approach her with passion in mind at that time? And would she really be interested? You know, the whole thing. It's just, it doesn't fit. Exactly right. So we've got that life and death. Um, the Nazis uh, are mentioned. And then uh, Nida, which is uh, the Hebrew for um, the manner of a woman. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm struggling with how to launch, but well, he, so, okay. he went. So he, where, he, he, I think. He, he takes Agag in this incident where Agag, in his last meal, as it were, takes the servant girl, and now servant girl uh, is carrying his seed. Okay, so from there, he then took us to the book of Esther, mm-hmm. where I think it's chapter 2, if I'm not mistaken, we get introduced to this character named Haman, the Agagite. Wait, Agagite. That was the king of the Amalekites. So Haman is 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 specifically linked as a direct descendant of this Amalekite king that that Shaul, that, that the king Saul, failed to annihilate, and because of his failure to annihilate him in the, in the first time around, he had an opportunity to procreate, and his seed continued. So. He he gave the he gave the analogy that had Shaul actually been obedient to the commandment and wiped him out when he had the chance, that that it could have potentially brought the redemption at that point. Right then and there. Okay. But he missed the opportunity. Agag, because of his attribute as an Alkite with this link between passion and death, knows he's on his you know, on his he knows he's about to, to die, so he takes this opportunity. 
the servant girl carries a seed and you get about 400 years down the road and we're now in exile in in, in uh, Persia you know Babylon and Persia right and this this Agagite who's a, a, he's another Amalekite arises by the name of Haman and his whole purpose in life is to destroy Israel right that's what that's what he he, he so, was, you see it you see it so quick timeline deal um, creation Noah Abraham King David King David's in this corner the master the Messiah of the world is in that corner so we got a thousand years on each wall right so we got King David his son Solomon right right before King David is King Saul, Saul. this is why King Saul is not the king because he disobeyed so we've got him right before this corner, and we're already, right in this area, we're already in exile waiting for the opportunity to come back in the land and build the second temple, because the first temple's back there in the corner. Second temple gets built, and the master is actually in that second temple. Okay? All right, so time-wise, that's what we've got. So we, we he picks up with that first attribute, this passion with death. And if I'm not mistaken, he then went down a couple of rabbit trails on this point oh, yeah. to make sure we understood it. Well, and one of those was with Haman. Exactly. So we'll go through the Haman thing, and then we're going to come back and talk about the Nazis real quick, and I think there was one more, but we'll, we'll do it. So, the Haman deal. You know the end of the story, yes? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, yes, we're going to be wiped out fast for three days... Blah, blah, blah. And then Esther. King says, I'll give you anything. anything. Up to half my kingdom. Anything you want. What is a party? Want? I'm, I want to throw a party for just two people. You and Haman. In, in her bedchamber. Where? In her room. In her bedchamber. Now, i got to be honest with you. <laughs> I never saw that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it said. One of the things that's Rabbi, odd. A little funny point that Rabbi, well, not funny, but very true point that Rabbi Levin points out is that um, you see polygamy from time to time, and that's one guy with multiple wives. You almost never see the opposite, where it's one woman and multiple guys. It just it's not happen. tenable. Yeah. The competition within the guys just makes it essentially impossible. So exactly. Esther, exactly. being a very shrewd person, Dangerous. decides. How do I want to get my husband, the king, to really not like who has essentially become his best friend, Haman? So she invites them both to a meal in her bedroom. So the whole way through, there's this kind of awkward tension, like, uh, this is kind of odd, but whatever. And it's two guys, one girl, just kind of, eh. So at the end of the story, after the second party of these... Right, which is also there. Yeah, Esther comes out, and she says... Okay, all I'm asking for is my life and the life of my people. And the king's like, who would destroy you? And then she says, this man, Haman. Now, essentially, Rabbi Lappin's point was, the tension's already there. The king's already a little uncomfortable. He's not really fond of the fact that that other guy is with him right now. In his wife's bedroom. And all of a sudden, he's just, he loses it. Oh, my goodness. I knew there was a reason I didn't like that guy. And storms out of the room. So Esther has configured this opportunity to really work her husband. She's got him wrapped. 
he is feeling uncomfortable having this guy there. He's drawn to her. There's this tension, and he's going to have him executed. Executed. Haman hears that, and what does it say Haman did? Assaulted. In the English Bible, it says that he threw himself on Esther's couch and seemed to assault her in some way. That there's something going on. And the king says, Oh my goodness, right here, with me present, he's going to assault the queen. Now, I always heard it, flannel graph, you know, that you know, maybe he smacked her. Or he's grabbing he's grabbing, he's pleading for his life and grabbing onto her skirt and kneeling down in front of her. No, he says your English Bibles don't have it with a hoot. Check it in the Hebrew. <laughs> He's looking for passion in light of death. Wow. He's looking for passion having heard that he's going to be killed. Just like great-great-great-great-granddad Agag, I guess. But that's sick. That's weird. But that's the way the Hebrews present it. So, that's also the first thing, first time I ever heard that. That was neat. So, we've got now a a second example here of the Amalekite, because I think maybe I'm the only guy. But I certainly was thinking sex and death. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, I can see that Agag thing, right? Yeah, maybe. Um, wow, never heard that before. They certainly never preached that from the pulpit. Oh. Um, so then he goes to, to the Esther thing, and you're like, there it is again. Wow, we just kind of sanitized that from the pulpit, too. Well, then, I think he went right to the Nazis, right? His point being that the I, it's not a necessarily a character trait, just a physical Amalek. It's a spiritual character that taints the spirit of Amalek. Yes. And the spirit of Amalek was clearly present with the Nazis. And actually, we could, you, you could even go through all three points of Amalek, because all of them show up with the Nazis. But this one he mentioned, and he linked it, interestingly enough, um, with Hitler and with Wagner. Um, his first point was that Hitler tradition, according to some biographers, not all, but some, they actually say that even though he had a mistress, he actually did not um, consummate his relationship with his Until mistress. he was about to die when the Russians were marching into Germany. They're six blocks away, ready to, ready to wipe them out, and that's when he consummated his relationship. That's that's sick. sick. But that's the spirit of The Amalek. same thing comes up true with um, the, the Everyone thought of the flood of the Valkyries. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. The, the whole musical is... Not that version. The whole musical is like 18 hours long. It's an incredibly lengthy thing from Wagner, and it essentially captures this Norse mythology that was sort of the mythological underpinnings behind Nazism. Nazism viewed itself as sort of the fulfillment of this mythological concept. This Aryan view. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, uh, Hitler was a huge Wagner fan. And in fact, the, he mentioned the autobiographer said he sat through this like, what, a dozen times yeah. or more? Yeah. It's like 18 hours long. Right. So then, his point was that in the story, you have the same thing. You've got people who are about to die in this musical, and then all of a sudden, there's like romance. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not normal. But that brought him then to a degree to point two, which was that the um, the Amalekites don't do things logically. 
they have uh, one goal, and that is they want to be number one or nothing. That when they, uh, the desire is, they'll either, when, it, when uh, you quote it from Balaam, Balaam being the prophet that was hired by the Moabites to come curse the, the people of Israel, he then does blessings instead. At the end of his blessings of Israel, he actually curses several of Israel's enemies, and one of them is Amalek. And one of his points is that he is the first among the nations, but he's going to be wiped out. And what the rabbi said is that's not necessarily just a prophecy, it's a character trait. Right. That the people of Amalek, the spirit of Amalek, is I'm going to be number one, or I'm going to go down in flames. It's all or nothing. Greg. Go out with a blazing glory. Well, and, and then, so to carry that thought forward, uh, or to continue the thought, he, he walked us through this whole uh, uh, analogy with the Nazis, which was just fascinating. Uh, and then we kind of arrived at, well, who embodies the spirit of Amalek today in our generation? And the answer, of course, is uh, is um, is extreme uh, Islam, militant and, Islam, and militant Islam. And it's interesting because the one of the creeds of militant Islam for the jihadists. Uh, is if I die waging jihad against the infidel, Allah, Israel, and anyone who aligns themselves. Yeah, I don't think I'd use Allah. Although I like What does the Muslim get if he dies in jihad? If he dies in jihad, he, gets, he goes to paradise and gets 70 virgins. Huh. <laughs> Seventy virgins. If I'm, if I die, yeah. Yeah. it's it's this whole life, death, passion with death thing again. Yeah. And that's and that teaching, by the way, is not in the Quran at all. That is uh, that is a teaching. It's a it's it's a hadith. I think is the is the uh, Arabic word, but it's the equivalent of a uh, halakhic ruling from you know the Islamic clerics way back. So it's not even in their in their quote unquote scripture, but yet that's what motivates all of these. One of the things that motivates all of these militant uh, Islamists to be willing to strap an explosive belt to the to their waist and in into a cafe because hey, next stop is my harem with seventy virgins. There it is. Again, links up a point two there that they'll either be number one. Or they they'll will be die destroyed trying. trying. Exactly. Which is what happened with Hitler. That he couldn't win it all and he went down to flames. They refused to surrender. Exactly. What was the third um, aspect of the Amalekite? He has one goal. He has one goal. One focus. Right? What is that one focus? Destroy Israel. Destroy Israel. Or let's say God's people. Exactly. Well, actually, you might actually need to put Israel in there because uh, the Crusades uh, certainly and the pogroms that, that preceded them certainly. Uh, Carried with them the spirit of Amalek. Yep. And they thought they were doing God's work. So Christianity at its at its 
it'll maybe maybe a character, yeah, maybe at its at its uh, at a caricature of it. Uh, in the Crusades, actually displayed not only theologically but practically the spirit of Amalek. And you see this to a degree with with Haman. He he um, when he comes up with this plan, it's like first thing he does when he's in power, he's got an issue with Mordecai, but he wants to wipe out his whole people group. And actually, he makes a point in his deal with the king that, oh, by the way, we're going to fund the whole thing with the money we loot from them, so you'll actually end up in the black when this is over. Which, if you look at it, you're like, so in other words, you're, you're asking for a favor to help the kingdom by taking care of these bad people. You're going to pay me to go kill people. It's like the opposite of a mercenary. It's sick, yeah. So it's the idea, again, it's like number one only goal almost. It's like is if I have to be number one in the world, and along the way I've got to wipe out all the Jews. The, uh, one of the things that the, the, the rabbi said that caught me was that in Germany the Jews had totally assimilated into the culture. Mm-hmm. And because their voice of righteousness was silenced, because their voice was silenced, the hand of Amalek was strengthened. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about our own country. Mm-hmm. That's scary. And one of the the outcomes of that was that they had to mark the Jews because you would you would think that you would be able to tell a Jew, but you could from another. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you weren't able to, so they would have to mark them. Like they did. Exactly. But Hitler has the same. This third point really throws up in his actions um, in World War II. And one of them was at the end of the war, they, first off, he invades Russia, which makes no sense. And Rabbi had a cool point on that one. Look at that in a minute. Yeah. But the other point was that in the war, they're losing the war. And his soldiers come to him and say, okay, look, you've got these concentration camps. They're staffed with thousands of healthy, good, solid, top-grade guards and security forces. You've got railroads and whatever else shipping Jews to these camps. Turn them around, send them to Russia, and let's actually win the war. And Hitler goes ballistic because his point really wasn't necessarily to win the war. It was to kill Jews. And he made it clear to the person who su- the persons who suggested it. You don't know what this war is all about. Because the war, in his mind, was about annihilating the Jews. So he had two opportunities to not get blown away. One was to not invade Russia. I mean, if you're going to invade Russia, the stupidest time to do that would be in the winter. But that's when he chose to do it. It's like August, right before we were heading in. So that's first. Second is he's got all these troops and these trains that could bring all the supplies and everything to Russia. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to change it because he is committed to the destruction of Israel, and he will take destruction if he cannot win, and he did. Yes. So when we look on the kind of geopolitical stage today, right, and the the vocal element of the spirit of Amalek today is kind of embodied with uh, with Iran. And the Ayatollah and the and uh, Ahmadinejad, who are made it very clear, you know, been very public, and very open, that they are wholly committed to the destruction of Israel. They got maps without Israel on it. Right. It's unbelievable. 
and and Hamas and Hezbollah and other organizations are you know ready to jump in and help however they can. But the lesson here in history, both from the scriptures and just guys, I mean Nazi Germany, that was you know sixty years ago. Okay, the lesson here is they don't. There's no. There is no compromise. There is no negotiation. Exactly. There's no. They will do whatever they have to do to accomplish the divine mission that they've been given, which is to destroy Israel. Yeah, no, could not. Peace treaty is just an opportunity to regroup, regather, and reattack. They are committed to their mission. It can be broken at any time. Yeah. Yeah. And in support of that, then that you'd have to include Foggy Bottom, the United States State Department. <laughs> Did you say Foggy Bottom? Foggy it's Bottom is the short. Is the short is is what you call the State Department? It's the location. It's the location. location. Is, was has been since Revolutionary Days called Foggy Bottom. Is that not ironic? <laughs> Forget I said Foggy Bottom. The United States State Department. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the United States State Department. Okay. Oh, that's foggy good. Bottom. Foggy Bottom. Oh, yeah, there you, go. you had a comment before you recovered, or were we good? Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, going to ask the question of whether this whole linking passion to death had uh, the motive of preserving the seed so that this divine charge could continue to be carried out. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. The, um, one other thing he points out, too, that's kind of cool as far as the hope that we have moving forward to a degree, he talks about the Nazi situation and he's talking the invasion of Russia being just completely nonsensical. And he says that there's a, there's a midrash that's quoted, I guess, well, sometime before World War II, by one of the rabbis who didn't understand it. He just quoted some midrash and said, I don't get this, but I guess it's going to happen later. And in it, Jacob comes to God and says, this is not fair. You've got me face off against Esau, who he then uh, compares, uh, uh, and his grandson, Amalek. So I've got to fight two people at the same time. He said, it's as though you've got me faced off against the, the bear and the wolf. So later, during World War II, the, um, the the Nazis are have a peace treaty with Russia. The Nazis are um, in allegiance with the Russians. So there's no reason for them to invade. They've got Britain on the ropes. They can wipe out basically all the rest of Europe. They can deal with Russia at their leisure because they've got a peace treaty. They've got a peace treaty with them. Now Russia has always been compared to the bear. That's just their the Russian bear. It's like the you know the American eagle, the Russian bear. And similarly, Germany has an association with the wolfhound or the wolf. So in this one, um, Rabbi Lappin said they were Jews during World War II that saw the Germans attack Russia for no apparent reason and actually saw it as a linking to this Midrash. At the end of the Midrash, God tells Jacob, don't worry, I'll turn the bear and the wolf against, against each, each other. other. Wow. So Jews during World War II were celebrating that Nazi Germany was attacking Russia. Isn't that cool? <laughs> To, to be able to read the scriptures, know it well enough, so that when you look at current events, you go, "Hot, ar, look at that! <laughs> That's cool. That must have happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bad Negro, right? <laughs> Same deal, right? Right? They get thrown in the furnace, and they're watching and looking at what's happening, and they must have realized that this book of Daniel was written about them. That they needed to strengthen and fight. And the Maccabees are looking and going, huh. Think it, that was us. So 
here we have the Maccabees, but Daniel's way back here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're watching, and he, Daniel's writing everything down, and he writes down that men will rise up and be strong and fight. And they, can you imagine being a Maccabee and reading this stuff and going, I think that's us. Can you imagine being one of the brothers and going, I think you're talking about you. No, actually, you're talking about me, but you can come to. Yeah. I don't think be cool. that that would like send up, if you're a righteous man and you see that, and their father was. Yeah. You know, that that would like be a charge thing, and that would really electrify them to to have the passion to for God. And it worked. They won. I mean, it's like you wouldn't even think twice about what to do. You would just do it, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. I agree. All right, so I think... Any, any final comments on the rabbi's talk? I mean, I would really like to know the source of that midrash because he went on to say the name of, of the military campaign, Barbarossa. <coughs> it was uh, the writing. Yeah. And the Barbarossa thing was in the midrash from hundreds of years before or something. Right. And, you know, that's why the Jews are dancing on the table. Well, he cited the Maharal. Yeah. Was, was one of the sources he cited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Anyway, that yes, ma'am. I have a question. Going way back, but Saul, what was going through his mind? Was there like a military thinking that he? I mean, like a. I mean, what what was going through his mind that he would save the king, for a, a public killing, or I mean, what would why would what would be his rationale for not obeying? Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's. Two answers to that, of course. Me standing up here, I want to. I want to ask you, what's your rationale for disobeying God at any time? But you know, we'll pass on that. Um, <laughs> the culture of that day was was clearly that when you went to battle, you brought back the king, you know, with nose hooks and we're, you know, naked stuff like that, and yeah, and then him in chains to, to make a public display that either your God was more powerful or you as king were more powerful than him as king. You know that kind of thing. Um, so I can I can understand. You know, with the culture the way it was, that you'd want to bring back the head guy to show, ha! And then, yeah, a public display. And we see that later on in the scriptures, that that's what's done on a regular basis, you know, with the quiche and so forth. Um, but the thing for me as a, as a man is that when God is so explicit in his direction, why would I be so stupid as to not obey? Or, as I often do with Saul, kind of try and backpedal and and come up with some kind of spiritual reason why I was disobedient, why I sinned. And you know, it doesn't work. It didn't work for him, and it doesn't work for us. It's as simple as that. I think it was a reboot. It makes sense that he was wanting to bring attention to himself because in that um, scriptural reading, it says that he went somewhere to build a monument unto himself. Mm. So kind of displayed his might against the God. Yeah, yeah, so. kind of sad. All right, so we're going to move on from that. For those of you who missed the rabbi's uh, talk, um, just go. It was, it was amazing. It truly was amazing. But I, I think, just to quickly say, I think one of the things I most appreciated about it was the fact that the rabbi sat down with us. He planned this out. He, he said he was in the car with his wife trying to talk about what he would talk about. He decided he'd talk about this subject. I like the fact that we had a rabbi come and speak to us, a bunch of 
Gentile tongues. And he didn't preach on supporting Israel. He didn't talk about cool Jewish ethics you can apply to your life. He got into the nitty-gritty using halakha, using midrash, using gematria, using... And using the scripture. Yeah, and but he, but he, he, in a sense, he treated us like insiders. Exactly And right. to me, just the fact that he felt like he could teach a lesson on a subject so specific as Amalek said a lot about um, his sense of respect for people that he's met who are following the God of Israel. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would... Uh uh, I would also point out that uh, he later on I found out that he did not expect to get through but about half of that but um, since Greg and Jonathan impressed him on the front end because they knew the Hebrew that he was talking about and anyway, he just figured we all did which was pretty cool like but it was it was great he uh, I heard reports that he was impressed and I heard him apologize to his wife as we walked to the car he said I, I just I just could not give them anything less than the whole talk and uh, I think it was Greg or somebody else that noted he had absolutely no notes. The guy talked for a solid hour and a half. No notes. You know what he had? He had his Bible on his lap. And that was it. Yes, sir. Well, just picking up on that that point, because when, when he noticed that we were using the Hebrew names and so forth, yeah. he says, oh, he says, so I can use the Hebrew names here. And you'll know what I'm talking yeah. about. And he's like, oh, okay, because I was just in the synagogue where I had to use the English. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, that was true. It was great. So, um, the, the neat thing for me was uh, when he came in, and uh, we had tried to prepare how we would work this and what kind of questions we'd ask and all of that. And he got here uh, about an, an hour to an hour and a half later than, than we had expected. Um, so it was just, it was going to be kind of tight walking into it. And uh, he walked right up, saw the chair and said, what are we learning? What are we going to study tonight? And I, I just got this sense that if I said, we're going to study King David's conquest of Jerusalem, he would have jumped right on. I said, whatever you want. And he sat down and didn't take a breath again. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I think we're blessed. And I think we're blessed because um, uh, I can't remember if he said this in front of the class, or if he said it to me um, privately uh, prior to that, um, but he recognizes that our walk makes the average Jew extraordinarily uncomfortable because they feel bad. They feel like we're outdoing them. And I think the Apostle Paul said something similar that our walk should cause the Jew to be jealous. We will provoke them to jealousy for the Torah and for the relationship with Hashem. And I appreciate the fact that Rabbi Lappin saw that as a good thing. He did. And that was really pretty cool. Um, it was, it was kind of nice hearing him ding uh, his own people as being stiff-necked and so forth from time to time. It was pretty cool. On the same thing, he said, should we be upset if the Gentiles are doing it or if the Jews are not? Exactly. Yeah. He was asked that, right? He was asked that on a talk show or something. Yeah. Doesn't it bother you that these Gentiles are actually keeping the Torah? And he, you know, he stopped, thought about it. Yeah, I think he said he prayed about the answer and said, Madam, 
I'm more upset that Jews aren't keeping the Torah than some Gentiles are. So, praise God. Okay, we're going to move on. I know it's, you know, Fanny's probably getting uh, sore here. Five, maybe ten minutes and we're done, okay? I want to talk about this portion. This is one of my favorites. It's got my favorite verse in it. Can anyone remember from last year what my favorite verse is? Yes, Peter. I, I don't think it should be your favorite. You I reread it this this year. Yes, it's just, there's nothing to it. But <laughs> I agree with your, your, um, your favorite verse would be where Moses says they can't come up on a mountain because he told us not to. Exactly. Right, God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain after setting the boundaries. Telling, you know, don't let anybody touch it. Three days alone. Blah blah blah. And he goes up, and as soon as he gets up there, it's an old guy, as soon as he gets up to the top of the mountain, God says, go back down, the people are going to touch, they're going to break through, come up, and they're going to die. And he doesn't get up to go. He looks at God, somehow, that's weird, and says, well, they can't. They can't break through, they can't come up, they can't touch the mountain, because you told us not to. Now, it may not say it exactly that way in your version, but that's really what Moses' thought was. I wish I had faith like that. I wish that I had a reputation like that. Well, no, Joseph would never do that. Why? Because God said not to. That would be cool. That's not me yet. Maybe that's not you yet. And we're on that path, and we're becoming more obedient. But that's my favorite. I love it. What's yours in this portion? Yes, ma'am. I think what Greg brought to light today about the hacking. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that was in this portion, but that's well, good. The hacking of a guy. Well, today, the hacking, yes, of doubt. <laughs> we should be today hacking that doubt. Hacking doubt when it arises in our own life. I got to get the T-shirt that says I'm a doubt hacker. <laughs> I like it. Of particular interest to us that have come uh, from a Christian background is is God's declaration, mm-hmm. not merely a statement of Scripture, but God Himself saying it. That it was important that the people see Him speaking to Moses, so that they would have faith in Moses, not faith in God, right. faith in Moses forever. Yep. That's right. And then a prophet like unto Moses would rise up. That doesn't really mean a whole lot to us today. If we don't have faith in Moses. And and it's there's no there's no question. Not only is not only is there a large portion of those people who claim to follow Messiah not have faith in Moses, they actually believe that faith in Moses is the detriment and the opposite of faith in Messiah. Yeah, which I mean, just couldn't be further from the truth. Yes sir. I got you Jeremy. Uh, that, that verse, chapter 19, verse 9, Jonathan and I were talking about, and that both that both of us kind of thought, man, I hadn't really focused on that before. And, and you know, in the prior years, it, that verse kind of jumped out, both of us this yep. year, that I'm going to come down in the cloud so that they hear me talking to you. That's right. So that they will believe in you yep. forever. Exactly. So... So, to, so I completely echo what Rick said, and I think to take it one step further, because we know that Moshe is also a type of the, of Messiah. Big type. Then this is also teaching That's us right. something about Messiah. That Messiah, of course, being 
you know, uh, being the one who brings the true and final redemption, mm -hmm. right? Right. We have to believe in him forever. Period. Mm -hmm. Amen. Period. I, I love that. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I love that part of the Torah service where we, where we, we point to the scroll and say, it's this, this is the, is, are the words that God gave to Moshe. Amen. And we're reminded in a couple of portions we'll be reading about when two lifted up their voices against that prophet. Mm -hmm. And there was Hector Pettis. I got you, Jonathan. To the power of three. Jeremiah. <laughs> <laughs> So I found um, my, this all the other really cool verses throughout this portion that really caught my attention. Um, eight, starting with eighteen seventeen, when uh, Yitro is actually uh, talking to Moshe uh, Yisro, sorry, is uh, talking to Moshe. What you know, anyway, what, what caught my attention the most? Because um, it says the commentary. You know, I thought it just I never thought of it before. Amidst all the different explanations I've heard of this portion, where. Um, He's talking to Moshe, you know, people say, oh, see, you know, Yisro, he's bringing this suggestion and, you know, all that's, it's a man way of doing things. Moshe, you know, he's doing a better thing, you know, he was, he was doing it and uh, being the judge and doing stuff like that. Um, you know, Jethro's idea of having, you know, these people that he's, he's counting on these judges, that's a man-made institution. So, you know, Jethro, Jethro's a bad guy. And I've heard other people say, you know, Jethro is this amazing one. Moshe was totally in the red and he was in the wrong. And Jethro had the entire idea right. But the commentary is saying, Jethro's suggestion is such a basic idea. Oh, hey, I'm doing all this work. Why not get people to help me? Of course Moshe thought of it. It's not something that, you know, Moshe just like, oh, duh. No. Instead, the reason Moshe hadn't done it sooner, and he waits until Jethro brings this idea and explains it out to him, is because Moshe was waiting for God to give him the idea. He already had the thought he could do this, but he was waiting until God actually said, okay, here, I know you're overweight, work, I want you to use this method. He knew that his human understanding of things was lacking, so he was willing to be overworked for a time in order to wait for God to give him his own perfect I will tell you that uh, I got um, This is the 17th portion in the Torah, I got um, I make it a regular practice. Uh, and sometimes I forget to tell you, but I make it a regular practice to try and recall what I heard from the pulpit in professional Christendom when it absolutely is totally against what the sages of Israel teach. I don't think I've ever read a sage of Israel who said that Moses blew it and listened to the voice of a man instead of the voice of God. Or it really was a mistake because it shouldn't have been this way. I've never read any sage who said that. And yet I've heard it, as you have, countless times from the pulpit. Jerry. Uh, mine's a different point. Does Please, go ahead. No, no, no. Does yeah, anybody want to finish points on this? No, no, we're done. Go ahead. Um, my passage that I liked real well was where he said, To me, you are to be a kingdom of ministers yes. and a holy nation. Now, I came with that to also ask a question. To me, that almost means you are to go out and tell everybody that I'm Adonai or I'm, you know, I'm God. And I was talking to Mel about this that, you know, today and growing up in the church, the Gentiles or the so-called Christians are the ones that are going out into the world. Where are the 
are the Jews doing that? Where are they? And it almost says here that you are supposed to be right. doing this. You right. need to be out in the world doing this. And to me, and this is just because I'm ignorant, but to me, the Jews seem to be in a box, mm-hmm. kind of hiding, yes. more than out into the world spreading the word. Good, excellent. With the exception of Chabad. Yes, with okay. the exception of Chabad. That's exactly right. Why is that? Because I remember they tried to talk. Mm-hmm. We kill them. Every time we, they try to talk, we kill them. And they have a very nasty taste in their mouth of people trying to talk about religion. Because basically up until this point, everyone kept coming to them, trying to get them to convert, and then when they didn't, they killed them. So essentially, like the whole idea of evangelism is a really dirty word in Judaism, and it's not necessarily because they say that it's not necessary or it's not important or they have some sort of rebellious nature towards it. It's the fact that they have this really awful background with it in all the times in the past where it has resulted in tragedy. I would would say there's several reasons for this. One is the history that we as Gentiles put them through. Second, I think Jews as a whole, um, from a leadership perspective, recognize that they're losing part of their people. Conservatives, liberals, reform, whatever you want to call them, they're not keeping the Torah. That's why we stick out when we do in front of them. And I think that Chabad, uh, even the Orthodox rabbi that's here in town, there's one. All of us are ultra-Orthodox or conservative or reform. There's one Orthodox rabbi. And his mission, he was sent here specifically to provide an orthodox presence to try and draw Jews back to the faith, right? And uh, Rabbi Gimpel, when he comes, I mean, his whole thing is, you need to support Israel. And by the way, you Jews, um, maybe you didn't hear. We've got a homeland now. Come on back. You can come home. And they don't want to hear that. So there's, there's several things here. Yes, sir. So, one comment on this point, and then I'm going to back up to the, to the previous point. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you raise a great point, and while we've hit on lots of reasons why, you know, why it is the way it is today, it's not an excuse. That's exactly right. Israel needs and must be a light to the Goyim. That is that is their divine mission. That is why they were entrusted with the Torah and the oracles of God, and why they've been called out. And why Messiah and, came and through? Unfortunately, that? but the enemy, as we can use that term, has, um, I think, by and large, you know, because of these reasons that we've touched on, has convinced them that 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 they don't that they don't need to do that for whatever reason. But that is not the case. Absolutely not the case. And um, and so it's not an excuse. I mean, we can all understand why, but they don't get a buy because of exactly. why. They should be elected to the world. Now, um, you know, you're going back. Go ahead. Wait, wait, before, nope. before you go off, because I want to come out of that. We should be elected to the world. If we've been grafted in, we are part of that mission. Yes. That's right. And so a kingdom of priests includes us. Not to be arrogant and stand up and go, well, the Jew won't do it, so I'll do it. But to be in humility to say, let's go together and do our job. Do you suppose that when one of the greatest Jewish rabbis on the planet said that in Matthew 5? He didn't mean Jews? Do you think he didn't mean the Gentiles who had been grafted into... I mean, come on, hello? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're consistent. You know, the church grabs onto Matthew 5 and says, that's us, that's the church. Okay. Um, you missed you missed a lot of, of some of the other stuff he said, like, 
right before he said that, he talked about not abolishing. Don't even think about it, let alone say it. Don't even think I came to abolish the Torah. I did. Right? So, go back to the previous point um, where Jethro suggests, you know, this structure, as it were, to um, to uh, to help uh, minister to the people, certain people. Uh, and and we had a lot of conversation in our home last night on on this particular topic because it's from this portion right here that within Judaism we have the concept of rabbinic authority. Right. Because Moses is the anointed one. He's been given the authority by God. And then he passes that authority to the men that he selected. When he was gone, they selected men to replace them. And, and so you have this, this, this chain of command, if you will, uh, where this authority is passed from generation to generation and um, and whoever has the authority when they speak, and this is the this is the common understanding. When they speak, it's as if they're speaking with the authority of Moshe, right. which in turn is as if they're speaking with the authority of God. That's right. Right. So we have this concept of rabbinic authority, and we see that Yeshua picks up on this uh, in a couple ways. In one instance, in Matthew twenty-three, he recognizes the authority when he says. Pharisees sit in the seat of Moshe. That term, seat of Moshe, right. is talking about this 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 authority that comes down. Okay. But then he also says to his own Talmudim, "I have all authority, and, I'm giving it to and you. I give it to you. And whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven." And the, the binding and the loosing is not, as I was taught, has, has nothing to do with spiritual warfare. Demons run around in, in gym shorts. That's, that's right. Although they do that. Yeah, although they do that. Right. That's, that's, that's very uh, pharisaical terminology talking about the ability to, to set halakhic decisions. Sure. So, so the Paul question, said the same thing. Right. To Timothy. Right. By the laying on of my hands, that weighty thing, that smicha has been granted. You bet. So that's why they asked him, right? Where, where are you getting the authority to do this? Right. So the question that, that came up in our in our discussion last night, which we did not reach a conclusion, of course. <laughs> You'll have to study this portion so next year. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it up. wisdom here, maybe I'll get in. The, the, the question is, okay, uh, you know, rabbinic Judaism today says we still have the same chain of command coming down from Moses. Yes. Right? The Karaites don't believe that word. Right. Okay. The master says, I have all authority. Okay, that makes sense. He's gone. Right? Yeah. And he gave it to his Talmudim. Right. And, and, but, where, so where is that apostolic authority today? Who has it? And, does the apostolic authority, does that mean there there was a change now? Because the Messiah, who is the greater anointed one, has has said, I have I've got the authority and now I'm passing it to you, who were his Jewish Talmudim, right? Mm-hmm. So they weren't doing anything contrary to Moshe anyway. Sure. Right. But so it was it's an interesting discussion. It is. Because there's this there's always a big debate within messianic circles. Well, how much do we look to rabbinic sources versus, you know, in, in that whole that whole yes. dynamic, right. right? So it's an interesting topic that comes up in yes. this portion. I, I think, you know, I would I would start off any conversation like that by making it clear that the master identified Moses as being joined at the hip with him. Sure. Absolutely. Moses looked forward 
and saw my day and couldn't wait. I mean, this is this is all you know. Got the jersey on the back. They're on the mountain together. You know, right? They, that kind of deal. So they're together sure. in that. So if there's authority given to uh, authorities in Judaism and it's passed down, I don't see that as any different from any rabbi passing down that authority for a particular community and so forth. So I, I think there's a consistency there rather than a, a bifurcation and now we've got two sets of authority where these guys you know, kind of withered up and now it's going down this other arm or something like that. I just don't see that. Um, I think you brought up a good point too that they were Jews. They were practicing a sect of Judaism. Right. So uh, I'm not seeing a, a problem there. So I'm seeing a consistency with greater Judaism. And I know that professional Christendom has a real problem listening to rabbinic authority. Well, most, now, of, most Messianic groups do too. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I think if we're going to listen to rabbinic authority when it comes to salvation, they may be a little torqued. But if we're talking about halakhic decisions, I can't see why I would want to, you know, be the pot and call the kettle black. I mean, it's just I just don't get that. You know, if they say this is how we should do it, I'm okay with that since the master did the same thing. The only time he bucked their authority is when their tradition overrode the very words of God. Yes, sir. And ironically enough, you could even argue, like... Greg's comment. Can you hear him in the back? And I don't think you Greg, can hear him. No. Greg's comment was: Is there like a um, a separation here? Mm -hmm. You've got train of thinking, train of line, Jewish rabbis. Then you've got Messiah, train of line, his disciples. Okay, just disciples. Okay, I'm going to follow the Catholic Church now because they're the you know the inheritors. Mm -hmm. the disciples. Yeah, the irony right. is, um, in a sense, if you read Acts, you see that there are many Pharisees who were actually followers of Messiah. Absolutely. And okay. you even. Not knowing by name if there were any or not, but there are hints that there may even have been some sages who actually were. Absolutely. Um, in other words, if you look at the sages today, you could even make the argument that at least in some of their teachings, they are passing down things that were passed from the master. Good point. And in fact, if you read a lot of the comments of the sages, you will find the master, whether they intended it or not, over and over and over again. This week is a perfect example. The sages say, thou shalt not murder. Duh! Every community in the world says thou shalt not murder. Why is that relevant? Why would God spend the top ten commands? That's one of them. That's already been given. And one of their comments is that it's more than just murder. And we know exactly, that's exactly what Yeshua said too. He said, if you hate your brother in your heart, it's as though you murdered him. And the sages are doing the exact same thing with the commands. So, in other words... We can see that the, the, the heart of Messiah is at times, in fact I would say often, exhibited in the sages' comments. Absolutely. So there is much to gain from them as inheritors, again, whether it's intentional or not, of Messiah's teachings. Excellent. And I would remind us, I don't know about you, but my Messiah is a Jewish rabbi. I know, it hurts. I know, it hurts. Yes, <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm sure Greg didn't intend this, but before we start running off to the, to the apostles of the Ami Zion Church and try and get some authority, yeah. authority's been given. I mean, uh, the apostles' authority is actually recorded in Scripture. That's their authority, and that's pretty good. Uh, when you consider the authority of the sages and, and such, um, 
Uh, rabbis today don't make it up out of thin air. They res- they they're, go back. They're not allowed to. They're not allowed to. So they go back and, and as the, in the same way that we do. So we have the authority and it's written down in scripture. Amen. All right. You had a point? Yes. Actually, Great, it's really- by the way. Great question. Great comments. Yes, it was, it was going back to the whole Jethro. We're back to Jethro or Ruel. Yes. Actually, yes. we've never really left him. That's right. You were there. Right. Right. Or, or Yisro. 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 Yes. <laughs> um, in Bible study yesterday, the women were talking about um, the the idea that Jethro was giving Moses advice. And we we're talking about um, can should you be listening to advice from somebody who may not Unbeliever. say oh. and um but I have to say, I, I mean, I know that there's some debate on whether or not Jethro's advice was good advice, whether Moses should have taken it, whether he already knew it. Um, but I have to say, uh, from my perspective, I think it was good advice, and we do see that Moses took it. So um, I I think that um, one of the things that was said at Bible study yesterday was, well, everybody has something to offer you. Um, no matter what their background and no matter who they believe in or you know, what their doctrine is. And it is up to us to filter it through the whatever we believe, in, in our case the Torah or the Bible. Um, and I do believe that. I think it's um, Ramban's letter um, for the ages where he says that everybody you should treat everybody with respect mm-hmm. um, and and almost like they have all everybody is you could almost look at everybody as better than you because you can say you can look at somebody and say well they're, they're more they're more righteous than I am and so definitely you should listen to what they're saying or you could say well they're not more righteous than I am it's, it's obvious from their actions that they're not but you know perhaps they're more pious than I perhaps they they whatever they're doing their sin is out of ignorance whereas mine is done with That's knowledge mm-hmm. and and stuff like that so it's it's the idea of looking at somebody and always seeing the best. Yes, the best. The one the things that they have to offer you rather than the flaws that they have. Very good. No, this is my daughter, by the way. Yes. Um, I think the uh Pierre vote say that we Pierre vote, everybody knows what we're talking about? Ethics of the fathers. It's in your uh, sitter. We should be a sieve, not a sponge per se. Um, because the sponge would really just take anything that anyone said, but we should chew the meat, spit out the worms. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Great. One of the interesting things that... Louder! One of the interesting things that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talked about for this portion that I hadn't seen before was when Chief they Rabbi say Rabbi. the entire people responded together and said, everything that Adonai has spoken we shall do. And then in next week's portion... It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of Adonai and all the ordinances, and the entire people responded with one voice, and they said, all the words that Adonai has spoken, we shall do. And he was pointing out how this is the characteristic of a Jew, that with one voice, they all do the exact same works. They do the exact same Torah. So it all looks the same, at least. It, in, it fluctuates a little bit, but it should be the same. But then the way that they relate to God is on an individual level, right. which is kind of fascinating just by the differences in the way that it's said. Good. The uh, individuality and yet corporateness of our faith. I mean, isn't that why we're all sitting in this room together? I mean, it's, it's better when there's fellowship. It's better when we're walking along this path with others rather than by ourselves. I mean, uh, we were 
lamenting with the Hackett's in the middle of Paducah, Kentucky. It's true. That's really where they live. I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> Paducah, Kentucky. They, they're all by themselves. There is nobody that keeps the Torah in their community. And it, you know, they're, in, they're in a barren wasteland of faith in, in this type of an expression. So, um, and I think they're probably going to be listening. So say hi to the Hackett's. Um, shifting just kind of quickly to the, the ten words. We're, we're about you. You get the last comment. Um, I'll take the last one of the ten words. There you go. So um, it says, "You shall not cover your neighbor's house." And one of the commentary in the the art scroll Kamash was, "This is a really hard command." I mean, it's only natural for people to want what other people have. I mean, it is. You you see somebody walking around. That's the whole concept behind marketing. You know, get that model wearing that dress, and that would look good on me too if you're a woman, or if you're a guy. If you're a guy, you know the classic example: the guy's driving the sports car. You know, he's got nine women around him or something, and oh, you'd be successful if you drive that car. If you drive fast, you get death and yeah. The point being though, that it's natural to want what the people have. So they said this is a really hard command, and then they said, but it's only a matter of perspective because. If you are a poor person, you might covet the neighbor's daughter. Yeah, she's pretty. But you would never covet the queen. Because that would just be ridiculous. I mean, there's no way she's going to ever see you or notice you or even think about you. So why would you even think about her? It's just out of your perspective. So then they say, in the same way, we should actually see everything around us from that perspective. In other words, saying that God has the entire world in his hands. Whatever he's given you, whether it be your job, your family, your food, your car, whatever, that is your lot in life. That's all that he's given you. Anything that you would want outside of that is just as inaccessible to you as the queen is to the poor man. So the perspective is... God owns everything, and if he wants me to have it, I'll get it. And otherwise, I'll be completely content with my lot, because I can never have what he does not give me. That was from a guy looking for a job. (laughs) I think the Apostle Paul put it this way. Godliness coupled with contentment Mm -hmm. is great gain. Let's pray. Good Father, we thank you for the time together. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in the body of Messiah. We thank you for the Messiah himself, his sacrifice for us, and for preserving the word of God for us through your chosen people that we might be able to study it together. We thank you for Jethro or Ruel, the priest of Midian, or whoever this guy is, and we thank you, Father, that he gave wise counsel. We thank you that you've given us wise counsel in your word. We know what you ask. We pray that we would be obedient. We would be joyful. We would be satisfied and content. All the while, spreading the good news, sharing the fact that there is salvation in this Jewish Messiah. Yeshua, HaMashiach Karunina. Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you, folks.